Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. Our guest on today's episode has made history on the basketball world stage. Coach Liz Mills shattered that glass ceiling by becoming the first female head coach in the world to lead a men's national team in international competition at this year's Afro Basket. Sharing her amazing decade-long journey from Sydney to Kenya by way of Zambia and Cameroon, Coach Liz inspires anyone looking at expanding their coaching career by creating opportunities. In her words, by getting outside your comfort zone. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today, a very, very special episode. Joining my co-host, Jacinta Govind, is Coach Liz Mills from Kenya. Coach Liz, welcome to the show. It is such an honor for us to have you here. Paul and Jacinta, I'm so excited to be here. I'm such a big fan of Shooting the Breeze, so it's an honor. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the, the G up. So, Coach, there's so much stuff we want to talk to you about, but the first thing I'd really like to say is what a great performance by Team Moran's in the Afro basket. They well, th- played such entertaining basketball. It was great to watch. Well, thank you very much. It had been 28 years since the Moran's had played in Afro basket. So there was a little bit of pressure on us to perform um, as well as we had a couple of goals to achieve as well. And I'm really happy with our performance. If anything, we overachieved, which, you know, as a coach, you're always happy with. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed watching us play. Uh, you know, a lot of Australians aren't very used to watching African basketball and it can be a bit jarring at times. But I'm glad that you found it very entertaining and you enjoyed watching us. Yeah, it is a different style of play. But it's a very exciting style of play. It, it, to me, it didn't seem as set piece as we tend to see basketball played in Australia where it's like you do your sets, make sure you're in this position. So it felt a lot more free-flowing. Dare I say it, it seemed like the team was having a lot of fun out there. And that's actually one of the things I kept saying in every single game. Guys, 28 years since we've been here, let's enjoy this experience. Go out and have fun. Although I would have liked them to play a little bit more structured, but that's a work in progress that we're hoping to move towards as we go into the World Cup qualifiers. If you watch, say, the North Africans or the top sub-Saharan teams, say like your Angolas, your Cote d'Ivoire, Tunisia, Senegal, these teams play a, play a lot more structured. Um, but definitely we're, we're a, an exciting team to watch because you never know what's going to happen. Even as a coach, sometimes I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen in this possession. So <laughs> you have to really adapt on the fly. And so it, it is actually a lot more exciting because sometimes with, say, European basketball, Australian basketball, it's, it's just a grind. And it's just like who can out-execute who and half-court grind and you're just like, wow, okay, is anybody going to do anything exciting here? So I think the spontaneity of African basketball definitely has makes it a lot of fun to watch. And I think um, to me that reflects your uh, coaching skills as well, being able to um, adapt fundamental basketball principles to the strengths of the team that you were provided. 
and not going with a traditional textbook, you know, sets and structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us playing over a couple of generations now without giving away our age, not that we're ashamed of it anyway. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we've, we've seen basketball um, across the world and in Australia, in especially in the last decade, like evolve so much. And I've personally noticed that it has evolved a lot into more sets, more um, plays of sets. And I feel like transition has been neglected a little bit. So I think what is really exciting and um, what I value from watching Afro basketball is that flexibility. Definitely. And like, I know a lot of foreign coaches want to come into Africa and just stamp, you know, either the European, the American, in my case, the Australian style of play. And You've just got to be, understand that these guys have started basketball at a later age, you know, 15, 16. They might not have got the fundamentals. So when I was younger, back in 2011, when I first started coaching in Africa, I tried, you know, put in the flex offense, put UCLA in. And then I realized, well, that's my style. That's how I grew up playing. And these guys want to play a little bit more free and concept orientated. So, you know, you hit the pinch post and you back cut. So therefore, it's not okay, I have to stand in this position, then I have to set a screen here. And then you can see they're thinking too much. And so they, they lose the enjoyment of playing. Um, and so I think, especially now, 10 years later with Kenya, instead of uh, enforcing, you know, how basketball should be played or how basketball is played elsewhere, you let a little bit more of that free flow um, happen. And it's made me a better coach, to be honest, um, not coming in as a dictator and being like, run these sets, do this, do that. When you get to know your players better, you understand that where they're coming from and you adapt. And so I think it's been a very rewarding experience to work with this team. I want to go right back to the beginning, so to speak. You've gone from Sydney's North Shore, you've gone to Zambia in 2011. That's a huge shift in, in anybody's language. And then... As uh, during our research, we discovered that you just sort of said, hey, could I coach these guys for about an hour? How was that for you? How did you find find yourself going, hey, I want to do this when you were over there? Well, it's interesting, you know, like growing up in Sydney as a female coach, you kind of automatically know that you're coaching juniors and predominantly girls and you're coaching women. Coaching men is not even in your frame of mind. You're just like, guaranteed, this is, this is the, the trajectory and this is what I'm doing. And so I actually went to the opening tournament in Zambia in 2011. A friend of mine was like, come and watch some basketball. I was like, sure. And I had zero intention of coaching in Zambia. And so I rock up to their opening tournament, which is like their preseason tournament. And it's the men's uh, senior club teams competing. And I'm watching it for the for two days. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to go and coach Heroes Play United because they kind of finished middle. Uh, they had a lot of potential. Their coach was coming in and out because he didn't live in the capital. He was working in the countryside. I was like, okay, let me just approach these guys and see if I can run a session. Um, it was very spare at the moment. Didn't even think, oh, this is men's basketball. I was like, well, I'm Australian. You know, everybody knows Australians are great at basketball. So I'm, I'm going off the clout of Australia, basically. And so their club president uh, had worked for the World Bank. And so he was very open-minded about gender equality. He was like, 
and I had all these qualifications. I'd been coaching at that point for nearly eight years at that point. And so I said, can I run an hour session? He's like, sure. And that hour turned into the full session, come back the next day. And I was head coaching that team for the season. And we were lucky to win. Well, not lucky. We deserved. We, we earned our um, championship that year. Um, Heroes hadn't won a championship in eight years. And so it was very exciting to win that championship in 2011, 2012. Wow. You saw a crack in the door and then you just kicked the door down. Uh, and this is what I say to female coaches all the time. No one's going to tap us on the shoulder and be like, here's an opportunity. No, it's not going to happen. You have to go and create your opportunities. And I did the same thing. In I know we're kind of skipping ahead, but in 2018, I said, I want to work with some of the top teams in Africa. And I had identified some of them and they were playing in Tunisia. So I flew to Tunisia with all my advanced stats and my ex previous experience in Africa. And I approached, you know, four of the teams. And one of them was Cameroon, who was at the time a top five African team. And I was like, can I join your coaching staff? They weren't going to approach me, right? There was no way in hell that was going to happen. And I was on their coaching staff for the 2019 World Cup qualifiers. Um, and if I, hadn't wow. if I hadn't created that opportunity myself, I would probably still be in Australia, probably not coaching. So, you know, that's what I always say to women, go and create your own opportunities. And I know that you're an ambassador for the um, Basketball New South Wales initiative, I'm a Girl. Is this some of the wisdom that you share with them in that program? Because I think that's super important, especially for, uh, I feel like for young girls at the moment where I guess the whole world is in a level of uncertainty. But um, it's just so easy for young girls now that we're older to just fall into the pattern like, okay, this is what a girl is expected to do and this is where my place is in the world. And, yeah, it's, it's not an inherent value we grow up with that if you want something, it's okay to be ambitious and go and get it. A hundred percent. And a lot of the time people say to me, Liz, you're so confident and ambitious. And I'm like, you say it like it's a bad thing. Uh, like if I was if I was a male coach, you'd be like, oh, he just wants it. He's so determined. And so that's definitely something that I'm speaking about in the I Am A Girl uh, scholarship program for Basketball New South Wales. Uh, it's about, you know, whatever you decide that you want to do, don't let anybody else tell you that you can't do it. And I think especially with coaches, think outside the box. If you want to go and coach the Sydney Kings, set out your goals Set out your path and just move towards it. Also, it's about creating women supporting women. And I think that's what's so great about the program. We're going to have a lot of great um, mentors, but also great um, scholarship holders who can work with each other to help build each other up. Um, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, we rise by lifting others. And I think sometimes with women, we're pitted against each other but we really should be helping each other. And I think it's a great program for that. But also I think, you know, slightly on a tangent, I think a lot of coaches in Australia, be that male or female, and we shouldn't even have to say male or female, just coaches, they think, hey, I was born in Sydney. I'm going to play for Sydney Comets. I'm going to coach the Sydney Comets. I'm going to coach a basketball New South Wales, and then I'm going to coach. It's just so in a box. Why can't you go and coach in Europe? Why can't you go and coach in Asia? Why can't you coach in Africa? Think outside the box. Like even if you're from Sydney, go and coach in Perth 
and just so that you get a different experience because you will grow as a person and as a coach so much more if you think outside the box and move outside your comfort zone. That's my little spiel. Absolutely. I subscribe to everything. Sign me up to your weekly newsletter, please. <laughs> you know, hearing you say that, I'm just, it, it makes me realize how many people here in Australia actually don't want to take those risks. Mm. You know, you, you're talking about Asia, you're talking about Africa, you're talking about so many places where there are so many opportunities. And there are probably countries there who are absolutely dying to get coaching from people who've who've come up through the Australian system to be able to give them experience that they haven't had access to in the past. And also, as you said, the players that you've been coaching they come to the game later, so they probably haven't had the experience with building up those basic skills at a younger age. And so having a more experienced coach coming in gives them access to greater skills and greater experience. And then also the coach gets to become so much more open to all the different experiences that can happen with bringing a team like that up. A hundred percent. I think, and the impact that you have not only on the players, but the coaches at the local level. You would never have that experience in Australia. I can guarantee the impact that you can have coaching in Asia, Africa, South America as a coach, you leave a legacy basically everywhere you go because you've got, uh, you've built, been built up in that Australian system, which is an amazing coach development system. Everybody recognizes it around the world. And then you take that to, you know, say a Kenya where I am at the moment and not only do the 15 players that I work with then go back to their clubs and filter that into their clubs, but also the local coaches I have on, on my staff. They go back to their clubs, they talk to the local coaches, and so you build the standard of the game. And that's something you can't do back in Australia. And that's because the game is a lot more developed there, but it's so much more rewarding here to do that. Um, and so... Uh, look, I could spend an hour talking about the benefits of coaching overseas. Uh, it is it, There are a lot of challenges, don't get me wrong, but I could not recommend it more, especially for young coaches. It's an experience worth having. So let me ask you a question then. Your sister travels with you mm-hmm. often. Yep. How important is it having those support networks, not just for yourself, but also for other coaches who are considering you know, taking the leap into South America, Asia, Africa, as you've mentioned, how important is it to have that level of support initially? Because let's be honest, it's really different. Oh, for sure. Look, I'm an identical twin for those who don't know. And so we've never done anything by ourselves, even when we were growing up in Sydney. You know, we played together, we coached together. I honestly don't know how singletons survive. So I'm probably, you're probably asking the wrong person. Um, but we would never have gone to Africa if my sister Vic hadn't gone in 2008. Let's go to Zambia and do a volunteer program. So everything that's happened is basically because of Vic. And I think more so because I'm coaching on the men's side, it can be, you know, I have to put up with a lot of nonsense. I was going to use another word, but I'm keeping it PG. Um, <laughs> And, you know, discrimination, sexism, et cetera. And so it can be a bit draining because of that. And sometimes I just need to be able to look up in the crowd and be like, okay, Vic's here. I've got my support person with me. 
I think as a singleton, um, if you're pretty independent and you know you're pretty determined, you could definitely do this. But I've got to say, I'm a, I believe in preparation in every aspect of my life. So it's not a matter of just getting on a plane and fly. I mean, we can't do that anyway now. But you know, getting on a plane and just landing in the middle of Zambia, I you know I know everything about Zambia. I know about the culture, the history. And being very respectful of that. And so you've got to do your research. You've got to speak to the federation in advance or the club that you want to work with in advance. Because say for Africa, with the Basketball Africa League coming in, which is the NBA FIBA League, a lot of foreign coaches are descending on the continent because they've finally gone, oh, this is where it's at. And so I would advise anybody who's really interested in coaching in Africa, now's the time to get in. Mm. And you just brought up a really interesting point. I know that from our travels, the personalities and the culture in Africa, certainly in North Africa, mm-hmm. is very different to the culture here in Australia. Yeah. What works for a coach in Australia is, as far as I can see, mm-hmm. not necessarily going to work in Africa because you're dealing with a completely different worldview mm-hmm. on how you speak and relate to people. 100%. And people will have to remember there's 54 different countries in Africa. And, you know, depending on um, their history, colonialization, uh, North, North, you know, Arabs versus uh, Sub-Saharan, uh, there's a lot of different po- politics involved as well. So you have to really... Um, understand and appreciate the different countries uh, throughout the continent. I mean, I learned a lot of valuable lessons in those early years. Um, African men do not like to be sworn at by a woman. So as you probably heard in my commentary at Afro Basket, I've got a very colourful language. And so or maybe they beat them out. Anyway, um, so it's just like learning how far as a woman I can push them. I get away with it because I am Australian. And so they're like, but if I was an African woman talking to them the way I do sometimes, they'd be like, get out. So I've learned some valuable lessons along the way of how far the line is for me and what is respectful and what's not tolerated. I think I've seen a lot of, uh, especially European coaches, uh, cause a lot of drama with how they treat African players. And that's just due to the issues Europeans have. Um, so, uh, and they're not as respectful, I would say, generally speaking. And so it's, it's been a learning experience. I've made some mistakes along the way and I've had to make a couple of apologies, but I'm, I'm all for living and learning and admitting when you're wrong. And like you said, it's just, you've got to appreciate different culture, different history, different traditions and not come in and force your way of life on someone else. Yeah, I read an article, um, uh, an, an interview article with yourself and Peter Fitzsimons. And oh, yeah. <laughs> just quickly, um, a friend of ours, Roy Ward, writes for The Age. He brought that article to our attention in a previous recording and my initial reaction was also the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because I'm not a, I'm not a fan because... Years ago, when I was at um, uni, he did a talk and I asked him a question about women's sport and he just basically poo-pooed it. And here he is writing an article about an influential female Australian basketball player. Um, so <laughs> the thing in that article, 
I mean, I'll give him credit. Parts of that article really touched me and especially the parts where you mentioned that you took time to learn about your players, who they were off the court. So going on from what you said about making sure you're prepared and being, you know, really conscientious of the culture that you're getting involved with and being respectful and adapting to that appropriately. But where did you start when you were head, you know, appointed head coach of the Kenyan men's team? Where did you start to try and build a rapport with your players off the court? Well, just going back to Peter Fitzsimons, just quickly, it was interesting because I had been interviewed a lot by international uh, like BBC, CNN, uh, Washington Post, etc. And guess who the only journalist in the world who asked me, what do I do when the players are in the locker room? And, and, And the only journalist to ask me my marital status? Wow. And the only journalist to ask me if I only coached in Africa because I must have fallen in love with someone in Africa because that would be the only reason why I would stay. But anyway, that's beside the point. That He was the only oh, journalist wow. who asked me that kind of I'm like, uh, nonsense. I'm not surprised, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad to hear it because it meant that my uh, spidey senses were right. Yeah. So anyway, to answer your question, for me, I had been in Kenya in 2015. Um, I was managing their National University Basketball League. So I had got a feel for Kenya uh, back in 2015. So I was quite comfortable coming back earlier this year in January. And what I noticed about the great coaches, you talk about someone like Greg Popovich, uh, Kerry Graff, Phil Jackson, and all these kind of coaches, they talk about relationships. And I'm a big believer in players don't care if you're a genius on the court until they know that you care about them. And then they'll run through a brick wall for you. And so for me, I'm, and I think it's actually been an advantage of being a female coach is we, and research backs this up, we have a higher emotional intelligence. So I think the benefit for a lot of male players who never work with female coaches is when they finally get the opportunity to, they're like, oh, wow. My coach really cares about me. And not to say that male coaches don't, but I think we just uh, form better bonds with them because we're easier to talk to. None of that macho bullshit that goes on between males, right? And so what I found is, you know, it's learning about, you know, uh, do they have families? Are they working? Um, What did they study at school? What was their background? How did they grow up? And just taking the time to sit there and listen or ask questions to be engaged Uh, Rather than just be like, hey, um, I need you to practice at seven, then you need to be at film here, uh, and I'll see you then. Um, It's actually taking the time to sit down with each of them at an individual level, not just at a team level, and getting to know them. I think, but also, I think my weakness at the moment as a coach would be because I'm very conscious of that line um, between male and female, and reputation as a female coach is a big big thing if you're working on the men's side is I don't necessarily open up as much to them as I would say if I was working with women's teams I think because of there's got to be that line and I mean they'll even tell you they're like Liz you're so private (laughs) and but I think um, you know 10 years on the continent I value my privacy a lot and I think but that's something I need to work on, being able to trust them to, to hold on to the information that they have about me. 
to be fair though, I think there is that conflict when you're a coach and you have the the more caring, invested approach in your players of who they are as people, and then them as players is a part of that person. Um, is there the boundaries of you? You do run the risk of am I going to come across as too nice, and therefore the boundary of being respected as a coach and having my players follow instruction when they need when something needs to be executed can be lost. Yeah, so I think. Yeah, so I think, yeah, to be fair, you still, as a coach, especially at a national level, um, mm-hmm. a professional level, you still have to hold that um, sense of uh, privacy as a boundary, really. Yeah, I'm glad you agree with me because sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, I need to need to open up a little bit more. And I'll continue to work on that in as we head into World Cup qualifiers and, and because the relationship goes both ways. Um, you know, I find out a lot about them um, and they they probably want to know more about me. So it's a work in progress. Yeah. And um, we, the last, uh, you know, my final season playing in the Waratah League was only last year. We had a new male, young male coach come in who had very good ideas that were very well suited for our team. And it all looked great and he was able to recruit some really good players. So it was the first time since I was back playing Waratah we had a good chance of winning some games. But um, I think his downfall was that he was too much of a private person that he couldn't even share a joke when we were at training. Oh, Oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. (laughs) Yeah, everything was very by the book. And he didn't show any kind of vulnerability or invested interest in us or enough to share a joke. And I think that was ultimately his downfall, unfortunately. Yeah, I think um, he's probably young as well. So he probably thought, oh, I've got to, you know, really come in here and, you know, lay my authority down. Hopefully he learned from that um, and learned to let his personality shine through a little bit more. Oh, but don't worry. I, I'm sure if you guys uh, follow me on Instagram, you saw some of the fun things I made made the team do when they didn't get their uh, foul shooting percentage up. Yeah, that was probably one of my most popular posts. So, you know, clearly it worked. Yeah. You know, I've got to say that what you've been saying about coaching and all that, it's obviously worked for you because you've obviously gained a lot of respect amongst the coaches throughout Africa because you, you said that when you arrived at the hotel before Afro Basket, you were welcomed by the Egyptian and the Tunisian coaches. And a lot of the other teams and coaches and players have shown you a lot of respect. So obviously you've made a really big impression with them. They're recognising you for your skill and your ability. How do you find that in terms of how you've been treated in other parts of the world as a coach? Look, I think it's amazing how thoroughly embraced I've been throughout the continent. I haven't had the opportunity to, you know, coach in every country or every region yet. Um, I'm working my way through the 54 countries. And to especially with the North African teams, I was really chuffed, to be honest, um, to be welcomed in, with open arms by them. Um, a lot of the other coaches I've worked or I've coached against before, and even if I haven't coached you, a lot of the players have reached out to me because I do the advanced stats for all the FIBA Africa tournaments. Um, and so players will reach out and be like, hey, Liz, can I have my advanced stats? Or that's how conversations start. And they know, even if I'm coaching Kenya, I'm there to promote African basketball as a whole. And I think 
I earned their respect by, you know, it's 10 years now. I didn't come in and coach at one Afro basket. I've been here since 2011 and uh, I don't coach anywhere else. I've dedicated myself to the continent and I think they see the work. They understand that I'm here for the long haul and that I'm all about African basketball. So they've really embraced me and, you know, even just to get that award from FIBA for being the first female to coach at a continental championship, to be up there with um, Stephen Canate from Cote d'Ivoire and Ranhound Silliman from Tunisia. These are African legends. I was more excited to be up there with them than to get my award, to be honest. And so that was a beautiful memory that I'll carry into my old age. The whole journey for you is just, is just so interesting in terms of the fact that you've got effectively a whole continent looking at everything that you're doing they're going wow this is helping us develop our sport and helping us do all all the things that we need to do to grow the game within our continent you know particularly from going take kenya and going to afro basket first time in 28 years and by beating angola to get there in a very tight game (laughs) that game is uh historic on so many levels because Back in 2012, it was my first, um, Africa's broken into seven zones because 54 countries, you all can't play at one tournament. And so we're broken into zones and you qualify through your zone to say an Afro basket or a World Cup qualifier. And so Angola is in the zone that I was in for like six years and they dominate the zone. And so in 2012, I was at zone six, which is Southern Africa club championships, the best clubs in the region. And Angola have three clubs in this competition because they're so good. And let's just say, I'm not going to talk about the scoreline because it wasn't pretty. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to beat this team. I'm going to, I'm going to stay in Africa. I'm going to beat the top teams here. I want to be the first woman to coach at Afro Basket. And so that was in 2012. Uh, so it took me nine years. Uh, so when we beat Angola, uh, you know, Tyler hit that, that shot to send us through to Afro Basket. It was like, okay, finally beaten them. Kenya's qualified for the, after 28 years, and I'm going to be the first woman to coach at Afro Basket. So there was a lot of tick, 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 tick history made. But it was an exciting time for you know, so many people, so many, uh, like the Kenyans, everybody who has seen my journey, my friends and family. Um, so it was very rewarding and very exciting. <laughs> we wanted to make it dramatic, you know, who wants to win by 10 points? And massive congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's boring. No, we want the Hollywood ending, the thriller of uh, everything clinched on a jump shot. And he got fouled on that jump shot, so we should have had one more from the line, but, you know, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, also, yeah, congratulations to Paul, obviously, um, you know, that game in particular. But sorry, Paul, I, I realised. One of the one of the key things is that a lot of these players in your team, they're playing overseas. Oh, sorry. You, you, I think I'm getting delayed from your end or you're getting delayed from my end, so my apologies. Continue with your question, my bad. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. Um, now I've lost my total train of thought. <laughs> Here we go. Overseas, overseas players. <laughs> That's it. Now I remember. I was going to say, some of the players in your team have got some, 
you know, they're, they're playing in the States, they're playing in, in the Danish league, and they're punching in some really, really great performances like Tyler and Tom Bush and Albert Adero. But one of the things that I, I really wanted to go back to, because you mentioned this earlier, is you've got some players who are playing overseas and they're obviously getting paid for it, but there are players in Africa who are obviously not getting the opportunity to get paid to play full-time. So how difficult is it for them to be able to play at that national level whilst also having to work and just basically navigate day-to-day life without the ability to be able to play 100% professionally? Yeah, great question. And it's not even just Kenya. So like when I was with Cameroon, we had former NBA players, we had EuroLeague players, and then you've got guys who play in Cameroon. And so it's the same for a lot of national teams who carry local players. Some of those top national teams don't have any local players. So with Kenya in particular, it's finding that balance between understanding that, you know, these locally based players don't get paid. They're doing this pretty much for free. And, you know, they're leaving jobs to come and train with the national team. Um, They're leaving their families as well. And then you've got, uh, you know, your international guys who have a paycheck and they're going to go back to their club. Um, So there is a lot more leeway. This is how I personally handle it. There's a lot more leeway for the local guys. Um, If they come to me and say, I need to go to work today or I need to go back and do something with my family. I am very flexible with them. I understand their situation. And I, who am I to say, I need you here all day because we've got to X, Y, and Z. It's only basketball. At yep. the end of the day, we're not curing cancer. We're not solving world peace. So, and I don't even care that it's at the national team level. I'm very big on perspective. So for me, if um, one of my local guys has some kind of issue, I will hear them out and make sure and check that it's legitimate. Some of them have tried to pull the wool over my eyes sometimes, so uh, I'm a bit too experienced for that now. (laughs) Um, So if it's work or family related, I'm always willing to be flexible for those guys. Uh, The guys who play overseas, I'm a lot more strict. You know, unless you've got a real reason to be leaving camp, you're expected to be here 24-7. Does that mean that you you get players are basically very geographically located to where you coach? Because and I, the example I'll use for context is, I've gone to mm-hmm. mainland China for work purposes, and I've seen there are people who literally move hundreds of kilometres because that's where the work is, and they literally stay there and then mm-hmm. they go home, you know, every so often. Is that a situation that, that happens in Africa and therefore does that mean that in some instances you're actually your pool of prospective players is limited? It definitely is. For us, even actually in every country I've been, if you want to be a basketball player and you want to play in the top clubs or for the national team, you need to be in the cities, be that Nairobi or Lusaka in Zambia, Kilgali in Rwanda, Yaoundé in Cameroon. If you want to be get the opportunity, coaches need to see you play in the city and you need to be playing in the National League and the National Leagues only really get played in the capitals. Um, they might go to, you know, a town three hours out, but they're not going, you know, seven, eight, nine hours to, to go and watch or play a league game. So I know for me in Kenya at the moment, I'm sure there's a lot of talent throughout the country. We just don't have time the money or the capacity to look at players outside of Nairobi. And all our players are either based in Nairobi or 
maybe two, three hours outside maximum. So I have no one like from Mombasa who is like seven, eight hours away. They would come and live in Nairobi to get the opportunities to play for the top clubs here and for the national team. Wow. And speaking of like yeah. how you mentioned, you know, the, the time, energy and resources to developing even, you know, the National League to as a stepping stone to mm-hmm. the Kenyan team. I was talking to Paul before we started and something that I was curious about is like why a team like Angola have been so dominant for so long versus a Kenyan team who was also in that same zone, as you mentioned, you know, took them 28 years to get to Africa basketball. Is it purely a resources thing? So uh, Angola is a really interesting story because back in the 90s and 2000, so like, as you know, they were 11 time Afro basket champions between like 1996 to 2011, they won eight consecutive Afros or something ridiculous. Reason being their president loved basketball. So he threw like everywhere in Africa, football is the number one sport except for Angola. And so we're talking like players were on a quarter of a million dollar contracts, US dollars. Wow. So, wow. So, so they were like, why would you leave Angola to play anywhere else? Right? So that's why they had a dominant league. Uh, players wanted to go and play in Angola. And then I think it was about 2015, the president retired and they got a new president who didn't uh. care about basketball. And so now you've seen the decline, right? Because there's not as much support. But they still have one of the best domestic leagues up there with Tunisia and Egypt. And I think the difference being in Kenya, basketball is like the fourth or fifth. We're trying to raise the profile of basketball in this country. So you've obviously got athletics, long distance running. Then you've got rugby sevens, uh, netball and volleyball. And then, oh, and football, even though they're terrible at it. So football is still more popular. But it's more accessible. All you need is a soccer ball, right? And so basketball is fifth or sixth. And that's why it was really in 2018 that a couple of players in this national team decided we want to go to Afrobasket. We want to raise the profile. And it was really player-driven. It wasn't federation-driven. So it's really uh, kudos to those players who brought this team together, put their own money into, you know, getting Kenya to go to qualifiers in Uganda uh, and stuff stuff like that. And that's how they've built this team. Um, and I'm just really lucky to have come in um, at this part of their journey. So it's 100% credit to the players. Wow, that is such a really, really cool story and two kind of contrasting situations of two uh, Afro-basketball nations in the same zone in terms of mm-hmm. opportunity. One, you know, lucky to have been provided the opportunity and resources from government versus the other who created their own opportunity and were determined to lift up their own standards. Um, and exactly. Because Mali is another country that has popped up on the global basketball radar in the last five or so years as well. Yes. Probably, I guess, with a lot of other African countries, you know, on the world stage of basketball, you're like, oh, okay. And here's, here's Mali being very competitive at the Junior World Championships for the last, like... being second. Like... Yeah, that was crazy where they came second. So some of those kids were actually, they're not kids. Some of those young men um, were playing against us at Afrobasket. 
uh, you know, and two years ago, they came second wow. at the World Cup qualifiers. And so Mali has a great junior program. They've done a great job of like paying their coaches, starting, you know, kids at under 10, under 12, which is very rare in Africa. And so they've done a great job developing boys and girls at the junior level. They're still trying to develop their senior team. Their senior team has still been a top 10 team, but they've never like really hit the pinnacle. They've also got within the federation, I'm not sure if you saw the New York Times article, allegations of sexual harassment and abuse of junior junior girls and the senior women's mm. team. So I'm not really about promoting Mali at the moment. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't across that article, I, um, I'm afraid. I will go and research it though now that you mentioned it because the under-19 Mali team were really competitive at the recent world championships in Hungary, which I was ripped about. Um, but mm-hmm. not yeah the FIBA president who's from Mali had to step down wow uh, yeah it was a bit ugly uh, we're waiting for the final report to see what the outcome is I was really happy when we beat Mali because I'm sure they hated losing to a woman <laughs> uh, and I mean if we ever see the, actually see the outcomes of those reports is another thing but um, why can't we have nice things <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair question. Something that just came to me while you were talking with Jacinta, just recently I've been talking to some of the people from Indigenous Basketball Australia, and one Mm -hmm. of the things that they're trying to do is establish more half-courts so people can play three by three to be able to raise the profile of the game. Is that happening in Africa? Yeah, three-on-three is a big thing here. Um, It's really starting to get popular. If anything, it would probably be more advantageous for African players, having half courts instead of full courts, easier to build, and you can take advantage of your athleticism a lot more in three-on-three, less people on the floor. So I do know it's probably since about 2015, 2014 that three-on-three is slowly beginning to rise here. I'm personally not a fan. I try and promote (laughs) five-on-five. Interesting. Interesting, because um, and look, yeah. no judgment. I, I like it. I'm still getting used to the rules and how quick it is. Um, but yeah, even during the Olympics, three by three, even from people who were basketball fans, yeah, would yeah, were coming out in droves on on Twitter saying that they weren't a fan either. So you're not alone. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of. Torn I just can't about get it. into it. I, I don't know. It's sort of like even like T20 for cricket or rugby. I mean, actually, the only good thing was rugby sevens. Because rugby, rugby 15s is so boring these days. So rugby 7s did improve. Yeah, I agree. Rugby 7s is much more enjoyable than the full 15s. Yeah, look, I'm a bit torn about the three-on-three three because it's fun to watch, but I can only mm-hmm. watch it in really short bursts. I can't, like, watch five or six games back-to-back. But, like I said, the thing <laughs> that seems to be interesting is that it gives people an opportunity to get access to some of the, you know, half-court, even just to play. Because it is so hard to be able to get, you know, full courts. Mm-hmm. They're a lot more expensive to build. They're a lot harder to maintain, particularly in countries where that infrastructure is just not there. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I was out at a school in Nakuru. Um, I'm an ambassador for a program that's based in Australia, but works in Kenya and Tanzania called So They Can. And we went out and visited a school in Nakuru, which is about three hours outside of Nairobi. And these kids have a basketball team, but they're using a netball court and it's grass. 
And so, you know, just they're talking about putting in a full court. And I was like, you just could have a half court here and another half court down the other end of the school. So, you know, you can have kids working off different courts. And it's just that accessibility. That's the huge issue. Infrastructure across the continent. Um, There's so many clubs, uh, players, coaches just crying out for just a little bit of concrete and a a hoop. Um, And just imagine how much more talent would be exploding from the continent if they had that kind of access. I think the advantage of three by three is that for young kids, if you can play a mix, is that when you play three by three, you have to be really good at guarding the ball and you have to be really good at being creative to learn how to score or to like to create mm-hmm. off. Like I'm, oh, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but just from um, coaching juniors over the last couple of years, especially guarding the ball, there is not enough emphasis or training how to guard the ball properly and defensive principles. Um, so I'm 100%. glad that three is around and it's like the new thing and kids want to get into it. I'm like, good, go teach yourself how to guard the ball, then come back to my squad and then we can get talking. <laughs> oh, look, I'm, I'm a defensive-minded coach. Like I don't care if you drop 30 for me. If you give up 30, you're sitting on my bench. It's that simple. Yeah, and um, – I, I think I grew up, you know, you and I grew up in the same playing generation. I feel like we grew up that very much the difference, and I put that in uh, inverted commas because you can't see them being a podcast, so I'll say it, is that, you know, the difference between women's and men's basketball is that uh, women's basketball is more defensive driven and there's more focus on defense. And I just, I don't know, for me, it's, it's exactly the same sport. Why wouldn't you teach the same principle when you're coaching, you know, the under 12 men threes, you know, that your defensive principle and principle is just... Jacinta, I could not agree with you more. You know how many times I get asked, what's the difference between coaching men and women's basketball? Well, I haven't coached women in about 10 years, so I can't really comment. But for me, basketball is basketball. It's the same X's and O's. It's the same strategies. I'm going to be teaching this young girl how to, you know, help defense the same way I'm going to teach this young boy help defense. So what's the difference when they get older? They've still gone through the same fundamentals. I think realistically for me, it's hard to compare because like I said, 10 years is a long time. Ego management for men's basketball mm. is takes a lot of work. Like mm. the male ego, you could write a whole dissertation on. So I, I think that's what that's should, that's should what I I, now? <laughs> that's that's actually what I struggle with the most trying to handle all the different egos in the team. Not to say that obviously we've both played in you know senior women's teams and there's still ego in that. And um, yeah. I'm sure Sandy Brondello could talk to us all about egos in the Opals. <laughs> and so um, for me. Basketball is basketball, whether you're coaching boys, girls, women, or men. And anybody who says different is really just bullshitting you. They're creating um, a narrative and reinforcing a narrative that isn't really there. 100%. Exactly. Totally right. And the indirect idea that, oh, women's basketball focuses more on defense. It's more defensive orientated. Are you saying that we can't score? We can yeah, shoot. We- I, I honestly, I think it's, I actually think women's basketball is more strategic because you are less athletic. And that's just a fact. Can't argue that. Like, that's just how it is. 
women's basketball is more true to the form of what basketball is. It's more strategic. You run better sets. Your defense has to be better because you can't get up and block everything that comes comes your way. And so I think if you, from a purist point of view, women's basketball is more pure. Men's basketball, if you watch, gosh, NBA basketball is now tedious as hell. Like, does any <laughs> does anybody, does anybody want to play defense? Like if I see oh. a school line that says 140 to 135, I'm like, did anybody try and stop the ball at all? No, of course no, they it's did. all like, let's just sag back to our halfway <laughs> to the quarter court. We'll only pick him up at halfway. And then here comes James Harden. He's going to use up the whole shot clock just to go through his legs a whole bunch of times. And then he's going to wave it away because he's not going to use it. And then he's going to go behind yeah. And then he's going to shoot a step back three. And that's their whole I don't, even, I don't even know, honestly, if I was his teammate, I'd be like, why am I even on the court? Why did I sign up to this team? Is it because <laughs> no other team would win this? Maybe. But. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But we, what's the word, diverge? Digress, but no, Digress. actually you don't. You Digress. don't yeah. because what you're saying is really interesting. One of my favourite quotes about women's basketball came from a former Minnesota governor. Now, I don't know if you guys have, have ever heard of Jesse Ventura. Right? This guy was a professional wrestler and he used to yes. be a Navy and a Navy SEAL, and he ended up being the governor of Minnesota. And I saw an interview with him where he said, I don't watch the NBA. I go and watch Minnesota play in the WNBA. Do not miss a game unless I absolutely can't make it. And he said, it's because it is more the game that basketball was meant to be than what the NBA has become. Okay, now, Mm -hmm. and I don't care what anybody tells me, this is a guy who was a Navy SEAL, he was a professional wrestler. Take that as as and how you see fit. This isn't some guy who's just trying to pander to someone. I really like watching this game because it's basketball. It is the way it was meant to be played. It's played predominantly below the rim, except for the odd player who can get up there above the rim. It's more strategic. It's a more thoughtful game. You have to play to your basics and your fundamentals. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, the NBA, which this kind of leads into, for me, is where a lot of the ego problems with men's basketball comes from. 100%. It's like entertainment and all about the money. Yeah. And, you know, I've been a long time Lakers fan. I really struggled to bring myself to watch NBA anymore. Um, yep. It's like, let's get the ball. We inbound it. Let's throw it to someone who stops three steps outside the three-point arc and throws it up. Yeah. Rinse and repeat. To be honest, um, until I was coaching in Africa, um, I hadn't really ever watched Euro League, Euro Cup, any like Pro A, anything in Europe. And so now that I do, because that's where my players play or a lot of Africans play in Europe, I really struggle to watch NBA now. Even in Europe, how they the, the basketball is, I mean, Europeans have always been a lot more um, like skill development, um, team development and more strategic. They're not about being flashy. They're just like, get the job done. And so having watched some of those like Barcelona, Real Madrid play, I'm like, I can't really watch NBA anymore. Even San Antonio to a degree, who is the most, or, um, you know, Toronto, who are the most like European almost style teams. I struggle to watch even these days. It's processed food. The NBA is processed food and everything else is whole foods. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> so, yeah, because I, I was going to ask, I'm glad that you mentioned now that you're watching the year 
more closely that's where your players applying when they're not representing Kenya. But as a coach, what are your coaching non-negotiables? Gosh, I would say non-negotiables for me. I have a no dickhead policy. So okay. I'm very much, <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> in terms of, I wouldn't say non-negotiables. I'll actually say more what are out my core values. You have to be... Uh, respectful. You have to be a good communicator. We lead with honesty and empathy. Team player, team player is my big thing and you have to be coachable. Um, those are kind of our pillars. And for me, those, yeah, those are kind of my non-negotiables. If you're not those five things, then I can't work with you. And I think it's being a twin and having always thought about someone else. Um, I really struggle when I, I'm coaching a player who's super self-centered and self-absorbed. I don't have a lot of time for those kind of players. And I've mentioned this in a couple of articles, Mbutu is something that we really strive to, to develop in our team. And that's an African proverb, which means I am because we are. I can only be all I can be if you are all you can be. And so I can't win without you being the best version of yourself and you can't win without me being the best version of myself. And so we try and create that positive vibe. So like you said, instead of those non-negotiables, we've got those pillars that you work mm. towards instead. Yeah, I like the way that you rephrase it to say core values rather than non-negotiables because with saying something like non-negotiable, it has such a negative connotation of like if you don't fit in these lines, then you're out. Whereas, I mean, core values, you still have to, it's not so much fitting a mould, it's almost like a philosophy or something that you've got to live by and um, kind of yeah. be a bit more accountable yourself if you're, if you're really upholding those values for yourself and your team. So it seems like it has a little bit more of an open, exactly. um, yeah, open connotation to it than a non-negotiable. I'm a pessimistic person by nature, so I've really, in the last couple of years, tried to spin, because I would probably have gone, yeah, here are the non-negotiables, bang, 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 right? And so I've really tried with my communication and the language I pick to always flip it and, okay, well, what's the positive way of talking about this? Um, and I try not to use the words like don't do this, uh, we don't want to do that, and try and flip it into a positive manner as much as possible. Obviously, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. Like I can come in pretty hard because I value honesty and t saying the truth because no one's going to get better if you bullshit them. 100%. So, and that's yeah, the there is a fine line. I, yeah, I totally agree. There's no point in, like I said, beating around the bush because um, your job as a coach is to help <laughs> someone be the best athlete they can be. Um, but the biggest thing that I've learned uh, coaching over, is is when you want to give a player an instruction don't tell them what not to do tell them exactly what you yes. want them to do so instead of saying hey like don't put your hands in on defense tell them keep your hands out when you're guarding the ball yes much exactly. more clear instruction exactly much more feedback and then when they do a good job like you make sure they know about it oh for sure for sure Man, I should yeah. have you as my assistant coach. You'd bring the positivity. <laughs> I'm ready. Sign me up. I'm pretty sure I was only asked to play my last season of Waratah purely for um, the hype that I can bring. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, before we wrap this up, because I tell you what, we could we could keep talking like this all night long. 
Really, this is great. What's next? You know, I mean, you've got Kenya to Afro Basket. I know you're prepping for World Cup qualifiers. What's next for Coach Liz? So for me, uh, I've got kind of two more goals. I want to be the first woman to head coach an African team at the World Cup and then the Olympics. Uh, I don't know which one I'm going to achieve first. The next World Cup is 2023, so I've got two years to work on that. Be that with Kenya or with another African team, I like to keep my options open. But basically I want to keep shattering glass ceilings and proving that women deserve to be given the opportunities to coach whatever team they they want to coach. And I think I can make the most impact by continuing to work with men's basketball teams and shining a spotlight on the inequality there. Um, And hopefully I won't be the first for long. There'll be a lot more women following me through the door. That's great. I mean, look, I can't wait for World Cup qualifiers I'm there. I, I, I love watching the, the African teams play. It's just great. And I can't wait to see you coaching a team at the World Cup and at the Olympics because you're so deserving. You've taken this team. You've got them there. You've got such a great attitude towards coaching. I know that, that both Jacinta and, and I are definitely going to be following this journey. You're writing a whole new book. Maybe I should write a book. <laughs> so, so I, like I said at the start, it's been amazing the support that I've got from you both. I wish in some respects that I had more support in Australia, but because I haven't come through the traditional Basketball Australia route or you know Basketball New South Wales route, there isn't that kind of support from that kind of area. But having the support of you two, my friends and family, other individuals in Australia means the world to me. But fundamentally, as long as I know that I'm getting the support in Africa and I'm embraced in Africa, that means the world to me. But thank you. And hopefully I've made an impact. Hopefully I've inspired the next generation of, you know, young girls and women to take up coaching. But it's also credit to the Kenyan Basketball Federation. I think how many other federations out there were going to give me this opportunity? I can tell you right now, Basketball Australia would never have given me this opportunity and so it's a credit to them. It's the credit to the players that I've worked with, not just in Kenya, but all over Africa um, to embrace me the way they have. And it's been a privilege, this career over the last 10 years, and uh, I wouldn't change it for anything. <laughs> yeah, I like, obviously, I'm already a fangirl before doing this interview, and now I'll probably put a poster of you on my wall when we finish. <laughs> but, um... But all of the, the, the things we've talked about, about the social and gender issues and all of your achievements that you worked really hard for and making the point of getting the opportunities that you wanted to get, I think the thing that has touched me the most of your whole story when I was reading a lot of um, articles about your journey so far is that it's such a good representation of how sport can make such a big impact on community. Like, and how much it's a vehicle for so many other things other than just being really good at a sport. There's, like, sense of community and you're bringing in, like, integrating their culture into their team and helping the Kenyan basketball, you know, get to the heights that their players, as you said, wanted to get to. Um, it's just, there's just so many positive things that come out of it, which is probably my favourite part of your, your whole story. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Coach, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. 
it's been fantastic. I don't know about Jacinta, but I'd say I'm pretty safe in saying we'd love to do this again um, and just talk about all sorts of other issues around women's basketball and the opportunities for women in basketball. Thank you so much. Paul and Jacinta, thank you for having me. I've like, honestly, I've had so much fun. I don't really like doing interviews, but this has been amazing. I'm definitely, you know, scheduling me in for round two because we've got way too much to talk about. Oh, we definitely do. Thanks so much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.